Egbert, the egg, lived in the refrigerator with all the other eggs and the fruits and the vegetables. But one day something happened to Egbert. He cracked. So he he squeezed himself together really hard so his crackedness wouldn't show, but that didn't work. And when all the other eggs and the fruits and the vegetables in the refrigerator discovered that he was cracked, they kicked him out of the fridge. The good news for Egbert was that he was an artist, and so he realized that no one would have to know that he was cracked. And so he decided that he would paint himself to look like the other things around him so that he would blend right in. And so Egbert dove from the kitchen window and he landed in a flower garden. And so he painted flowers all over his shell. And that worked really well until an angry bee discovered you cannot get nectar from an egg. Egbert was found out and kicked out of the garden. Since it was getting dark, he decided that he would paint himself the color of the night sky with stars. And that worked really well. Until the next morning when the sun appeared and the stars disappeared and once again, Egbert was exposed. Egbert realized that no matter how he painted himself, he could not hide who he was. A cracked egg. We should learn a lesson from Egbert, we cannot hide who we are in Christ. Neither should we want to. Our goal cannot be to blend in with the world so that no one notices how different we are. In fact, we must have the right view of the world and our place in it as believers in Christ. We must have a right view of the world and our place in it. That's what I want us to talk about this morning as we come once again to Matthew chapter 5, a little sad not to be reading the Beatitudes this morning, but we have passed those by. This morning we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. So if you have a Bible, if you'll turn to Matthew 5, and when you found your place, if you'll stand so we can hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 5. 5, beginning in verse 13, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus speaking, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people Light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. Lord Jesus, this is your truth spoken in time and space to these disciples, and through them it comes to us this morning. We're now your people, your disciples those you send into the world. So we pray now, Lord, that your spirit would come now, join this word that we have read, and teach us truth, and cause that truth to transform us, how we think, and how we act, and what we believe. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you. You may be seated. It's clear from these words of Jesus that we've just read that Jesus doesn't intend for his disciples to stay on the mountain with him where he's teaching them in this moment. That's not how he has designed them and it's not how he's designed us. If in the Beatitudes, Jesus shows us who we must be, and over the course of many weeks, we discover the Beatitudes show us who we must be in order to flourish, then that flourishing that comes from living out these Beatitudes must take place in the world. Jesus says here, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. So earth and world are parallel here, and they're used synonymously. And all we're going to talk about this morning is the world. That's it. Just the world. And we're going to answer three questions about the world. And the first question for us to consider is this. Who is the world? And you might think I should rather ask, what is the world? Because that's the way we're accustomed to thinking about it, isn't it? The world is a thing. It's an inanimate object. It's a round globe. That's the world. Or the world is the dirt and the sod under our feet. And technically, that's correct. In English and in Greek, world literally means the surface of the earth. But Jesus here in these verses and in other places uses the word in a different way. Jesus uses it to indicate the inhabitants of the earth. Jesus uses the word world to refer to to people, to humanity. Now, that might be a subtle shift in our thinking, but it's a shift that's vital for us to make. Literally, you and I need to make the world more human in our thinking. To move away from the world, uh, seeing it as inanimate, impersonal objects like globes and dirt, And to understand that when Jesus talks about the world, he's talking about human beings. Because in these verses, Jesus moves his disciples off of the mountain and places them in the midst of people, the world. And sometimes that place is a little counterintuitive for Christians. Our intuition tells us that we need a mountaintop experience. We sense that that's the place that we need to be, alone and away with Jesus. Our instinct as believers is often to retreat. Because like Egbert, we realize that we are cracked. We realize that we are different from others in the world. And it can be uncomfortable for us to stand out as we do when we are honestly and authentically living the Christian life. And so what do we like to do? We are drawn into the holy huddle. It feels safer and more comfortable to do what we do and say what we say, think what we think, to hold the opinions that we hold when we're with other believers. But Jesus in these verses is in effect saying, get out of the huddle. Get off of the mountain. While retreating from time to time, it's beneficial for us. It restores our souls. You and I need to work against the feelings 
And they're real feelings that would keep us only and always on the mountain and out of the world. we got to remind ourselves that flourishing that Jesus wants for us doesn't take place on the mountain alone in a place of retreat. It comes from being in the world. God has designed us to be in the world. He's equipped us to be in the world. He's empowered us to be in the world with its people. So once again, you and I have to put into action the two words that we talked about over and over again when we looked at the Beatitudes. Radical and revision. You and I, along with other evangelical Christians, need to revision a Christian life not lived on the mountaintop, not lived in a holy huddle. We need to revision a Christian life that's lived in the world. So the first question, who is the world? The answer is people. The second question, how do we live in the world? The answer is this. You and I have to live like cracked pots. The preacher said to be a crackpot. <laughs> Not crackhead. But just like Egbert, your life and my life is cracked. And I hope that doesn't offend you, but you are not now, nor in this lifetime will you ever be perfect. And my wife said, amen, say it again. <laughs> oh, if you only knew. Scripture says this, we read it this morning during our time of confession, that the message of the gospel, that God has placed it in jars of clay, clay pots. Clay is fragile. Clay can and does easily crack. But God has seen fit, for some reason, to put the gospel, the new life brought about by the gospel, in jars of clay. And so you and I live as Egberts in the world. Again, going back to, to your bulletin and and the, the confession there, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paraphrase, you and I, when we live authentically cracked lives in this world, and when the light of Jesus shows out through those cracks, Jesus gets the glory for what he has done in us and through us. Paul continues, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair. You, you heard me read it earlier this morning. Paraphrase, there are many realities in this world that will continue to crack us. Paul continues, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paraphrase, our weakness is Christ's strength. And isn't that the power-packed truth that's captured in the simple children's song that we teach them at such an early age? Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but... Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. 
the Bible tells me so. That simple. Loves me. Jesus loves me. Cracked though I may be. And what the Lord does with cracked people in the world, that is a thing of absolute beauty. The transformation he brings, that's a thing of beauty for the world to see. The family that's striving to be centered on Christ, right in the midst of families who are in turmoil and crisis, that's a thing of beauty for the world to see. The life of others-centeredness, in the midst of self-centeredness and grasping for self, that's a thing of beauty for the world to see. Words spoken with grace and compassion in a culture that's lost all sense of decorum in the way we annihilate each other verbally. It's a thing not only of beauty, but of safety for the world to see and hear. And all of this, when we are this in the world, it's all of Christ. It's all His doing. It's all His good work in us. It's not something we accomplished on our own. It's not even something we wanted on our own. In fact, many of those things that we still wanted to say, many of those things we still wanted to do, even after we became Christians, it took and it is taking right now the Spirit of God to change us, but He is changing us, and that's the good news. It's the thing of beauty for the world to see. And so the first question, who is the world? The world is real human beings. The second question, how do we live in the world from which we refuse to retreat as imperfect, cracked pots in whom the Lord is beautifully at work? The third question, when we are in the world, how should we view it? Should we disdain the world? People? Should we be disgusted by the world? People? Should we be judgmental? Should we be holier than thou? Let's answer these questions by considering how God views the world. Because how God views the world is the view, it is the view that compelled him to come in person, and be in the world. You know that the world was specially created for the habitation of human beings that God created in his own image. After God had finished making everything ex nihilo, out of nothing, everything it is, there is sun, moon, stars, trees, vegetation, flowers, animals, and when he saw that all of it was good, when he saw that all of it was very good, when it was all ready, God took the dust from the ground and he formed it into a human being. And God breathed his own breath into that human being and that human being came alive. And God took that human being and placed him right in the middle of that beautiful garden, the world. Then sin entered that beautiful creation. And everything about creation was changed. Thorns and thistles grew where once was abundant, lush vegetation. The human heart changed. It was no longer singly and devotedly 
focused on God. It was no longer satisfied by God alone. The human heart turned inward towards self. And FYI, that will destroy every, every relationship in life when you're focused on self. And so you have a changed world, changed hearts, changed relationships. And none of that change was good. And so the world that now is, after sin, is not the world that God created. But God did not cast away his creation. He now looks at it and deals with his creation in a different way. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 12, 47. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 1 John 4, 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. I read all those verses so that you could hear for yourself the heart of God toward the world. Not the dirt, the grass, and the trees. But his heart toward the world and the people of it. God has spoken. Did you hear? He's clearly expressed his desire. It's it's what he wants, and so it's what he works toward. God now views the world, people, as those to be saved. People to be kept safe. People to be preserved. People to be rescued from danger, particularly eternal danger. This is how God views the world, as needing to be saved. How do you view the world? How closely does your view of the world and the humanity of it match God's view? As one that God did rescue. He did rescue you. Not because of anything you did, but solely By the power of His Spirit, working His grace and His faith in you, how do you now view the world? The humanity living and laughing and working and loving and losing and crying on the dirt under your feet. Do you share God's view as you look around the world? Do you view people as those who need to be rescued or... Do you take a different view? See, here's the irony of the Christian life. Once we've been saved, it seems to me that we develop a distaste for, and sometimes stronger than that, a disgust for those people who are like we were before we were saved. People who have the same crazy ideas that we had before we were saved. Ideas like the one who dies with the most toys wins. So we live toward that. Ideas like there is no ultimate truth. There's no right, no wrong. Ideas like everyone should be free to do what they want and to live as they please and to make the choices that are best for them. Ideas like it doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you believe something, all roads lead to God, or ideas like there is no God. 
Where I just like, if there is a God, he doesn't care. He isn't interested in my life. I just like, I'm not good enough for God. I just like, I've got to clean myself up before I come to God. That's crazy talk, people. Crazy talk. All of it. I don't know what your views were before Jesus rescued you, but I know this. They weren't biblical thoughts and they weren't biblical truths because God had not yet revealed those to you. Consider what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We would not know about the gospel. We would not know the good news. We would not know about new life if God had not revealed it to us in Jesus. Jesus says, Matthew 11, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. What would you know about the good news? What would you know about life and hope? What would you know about true flourishing if Jesus hadn't revealed it to you? Luke chapter 10, Jesus prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed these truths to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What would you know about good news, about life, and about hope? What would you know about true flourishing in your life if Jesus had not revealed it to you? When Peter finally understood who Jesus was, after watching him, listening to Jesus, misunderstanding him, being frustrated by Jesus, Peter finally got it. I know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter wouldn't have figured it out. Peter couldn't have figured it out if the Spirit of God had not revealed it to him. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. No one could have imagined the gospel. No one could have made it up. It seems too good to be true. New life. Eternal life. Through faith in Jesus. We could not understand it. Or the beauty of it. If the Lord did not reveal it to us. Galatians 1. Paul writes, God set me apart before I was born. God called me by His grace. God was pleased. God was pleased to reveal His Son to me. Colossians 1, again Paul writes, Of the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed. To them God chose to make known how great are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We should be driven to complete Humility. When we consider that what we would not know, when we consider what we would not have if God had not 
revealed to us and given to us. And, and perhaps it's because Peter and Paul clearly understood who they were before Jesus saved them and who they became afterward. Maybe that's what caused them to hold this truth so dearly and to repeat it so often. It's what the Lord has done. It's what the Lord has revealed. They understood the depth of their own sin and the wrong ideas and the wrong perspectives that they had before Jesus revealed himself to them. And perhaps that's why they went with such passion and boldness into the world and to the humanity that lives in the world to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, you crucified and killed him, but God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it's not possible for him to be held by it. That's good news, isn't it? Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It's Paul's boldness. Paul went to the Areopagus. If it was not the most, it was at least one of the most intellectually and philosophically intimidating places in the entirety of the Roman Empire. At that place, the best thinkers and debaters gathered. The men who claimed to have it all figured out. The men who claimed to know how to find meaning in life and how to live a life that led to flourishing. The men who others followed because of their apparently sound reasoning and logical philosophical views. Yes, yes, this makes sense. Paul was not disgusted by them. He was not put off by their wrongly held and espoused opinions. Instead, Paul stood up in the middle of them because he had the right view of the world. He had the right view of humanity. So he stood in their midst and he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he spoke the truth to them. Perhaps Peter and Paul could see their own faces in the faces of the people of the world to whom they spoke the words of the gospel. Perhaps in the faces of those people, they could see their own faces and who they were before Jesus revealed himself to them. People who were just as confused as they had been. People who were just as confident in their wrong thinking as they had been. People who were making the same mistakes. People who were thinking the same wrong thoughts. People who were hoping in what was hopeless. People who were looking for meaning in what was empty. And these people are in the exact same need of God's salvation. These people are in the exact same need of God's salvation. And the reason I belabor this point and read that multitude of verses is because if we don't stop to think very often, very often, about what the Lord has done for us, if we don't ponder about what the Lord has revealed to us, if we don't think about that from which the Lord has saved us, we will never view the world rightly. We might only ever feel disdain for the people around us. We might only ever feel disgusted by their behavior. 
And the moment we have those feelings and think those thoughts, we, we think we're better than they are and we are wrong. It's nothing that we have done, but only the grace of God that we understand his truth and the gospel. We cannot despise those who do not yet understand it. Think about your own life for a moment. And think about how difficult it is for you to live the Christian life. How difficult it is for you to think right thoughts. And you have the Spirit of God living within you. What right have we to be put off by others who do not have the Spirit for thinking how they think and for acting how they act? They need your compassion, not your condemnation. They need your compassion and my compassion and not our condemnation. So the third question, how do we view the world? Humbly with compassion and not condemnation. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The world is people. We must live in the world, not retreat from it, not blend into it. We must live among the people of the world humbly and gratefully as those who have been rescued by the Lord. We must live distinctly and authentically and identifiably Christian lives, even with all of our crackedness, so that the power of Christ is displayed in us and through us. We must be convinced that the world needs to be saved, and we must believe that salvation is found in no one other than Jesus Christ alone. For God so loved the world, and so must we. The world needs you. The world needs me to bring Christ to them. Will we do it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that the answer to that question will be yes. That we will bring Christ to the world. The good news of the gospel. That we would see that apart from you, the world is hopeless. Lord, no matter what our culture tells us, this world needs to be saved. No matter what our culture tells us, salvation is found in Christ alone. Lord, convince us of that truth. Father, make us prayerful people because we believe it to be true. That unless you reveal your truth, unless your spirit works, people will not know, people will not see, people will not be saved. So cause us to be people who pray for the world, people whose hearts are broken for the world, people who are eager to go into the world. Lord, help us be authentic people. Lord, we deny the gospel when we believe that we have to be perfect before others. If that were the case, who would need you? But Lord, I pray that through all the cracks that we have in us, that your light would shine out because there it is, Lord, inside us. We pray that the world would see that light and give you the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.